John chapter 10. We finally hit double digits in the Gospel of John. It's taken us a while to get here, but we made it to chapter 10. Good job, everyone. And so we'll be in John 10, starting in verse 1, in just a, a few minutes. Now, you've probably noticed that over the last 20 years, reality TV shows are some of the most popular shows on television, especially on the networks. You've got shows like Survivor and Amazing Race that have been around for 20 years now, shows like Big Brother. Some of these reality shows have become very popular, but they weren't around until long after the very first reality show came on television. That first reality show was none other than Candid Camera. How many of you ever saw Candid Camera? So most of you know how it works with hidden cameras in place. They would have unsuspecting people be led through these situations where they'd be caught off guard. And some of the people's reactions when they didn't know they were being filmed and had some weird thing happen to them, some of those reactions were priceless. Well, there was a classic episode where the Candid Crew team went into a boys' prep school. And this was kind of like the cream of the crop prep school. Just about every boy enrolled there was a genius. These kids were super smart. They could all be valedictorians. And so they were in this school. And so the candid camera came in and convinced the boys that they were guidance counselors helping to consult them as to what career they should go into when they get out of school. And so the boys were excited to finally have someone verify what they had dreamed of doing. And they brought this one boy in and they gave him the tests and they gave, they gave him the interview. And he was so proud of himself because, man, he had aced the test and he did just so good on the interview. And so they bring him in and they say, well, we looked over your test results and and we, we consulted all the notes we took during your interview, and, and we have a rec- recommended career for you. And the boy was so excited, he couldn't wait to hear what they said. He was thinking, maybe they say, I'm going to be a brain surgeon, or they should say, uh, I should be a bank president, or, or maybe I should be a college president, maybe I should be an astronaut. He couldn't wait to hear what they were going to tell him. And that person from Candid Camera looked at the little boy, and he said, son, uh, we've looked at all your tests. You did great on the test. We looked over your interview, and we have decided the perfect career for you. We've decided you should be a shepherd. (laughs) And the little boy's jaw dropped, man. He was devastated. He didn't know if he should cry or laugh. You know, it sounded insane. Who in their right mind would want to be a shepherd? Well, it turns out there's someone who dreams of being a shepherd. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ longs to be a shepherd. And it turns out he's really, really good at it. Amen. And so we're going to talk about that a bit today as we dive into John chapter 10 in just a moment. Now, just to make sure we're all on the same page here, some of you weren't here over the last couple weeks, John chapter 9, remember what happened. Jesus and his disciples were there uh, around the temple grounds somewhere. They were there in Jerusalem, and Jesus performed one of his most amazing miracles ever. He healed a man who was blind. He healed a blind beggar on the side of the road. I said a moment ago he's in the temple courts. They were actually outside the temple. But he healed this man that was blind. And it wasn't just a matter of this man's eyes had once worked and then all of a sudden stopped working. Didn't have macular degeneration or something. This man's eyes had never worked. He was born blind. No one had ever heard of someone being healed that was born blind. Jesus created eyesight out of nothing. It was an amazing miracle. And so this man that was healed, he was blown away. He was celebrating. You would expect his neighbors to be celebrating, but they weren't. They were wet blankets, remember? And so they end up taking him to the Pharisees. And if the neighbors were wet blankets, the Pharisees were even bigger wet blankets. 
They interrogated the man. They brought in his mom and dad. They interrogated this man's parents. They interrogated the man a second time. And they get so angry, they end up kicking the man out of the synagogue. They didn't believe what he had to say. They didn't think he had any credibility. And they certainly didn't believe what he had to say about Jesus. And it turns out that getting kicked out of that synagogue might have been the best thing that ever happened to this blind man. Because as he was kicked out of that synagogue, Jesus went looking for him. And Jesus found him. And Jesus revealed himself to that man as the Savior of the world. And we learn by the end of the chapter that that man who had formerly been blind believed in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and began to worship him. Isn't that awesome? Began to worship Jesus Christ. He became a saved follower of Jesus Christ. We get to the end of the chapter and we see that Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for their spiritual blindness. Jesus tells them plainly, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. They could see with their eyes, but they were spiritually blind. And as we pick up in verse 1 of John chapter 10, Jesus continues to speak to the religious leaders, probably still in Jerusalem, but he'll switch metaphors. In chapter 8, as Jesus stood just a few feet from those large candelabras that were set up in the temple courts for the Feast of Tabernacles, as he stood in front of those candelabras, he declared, I am the light of the world. But here in chapter 10, Jesus is going to look at a different analogy, a different metaphor, He's going to declare to these people who are very familiar with the sight in Judea of shepherds with their sheep on the hillsides. He's going to declare two things. Number one, I am the gate for the sheep and I am the good shepherd. Amen. Amen. So let's dive into verse one of John chapter 10. Say amen if you're there. I was afraid that was going to happen. My glass frames broke a few days ago and there went my lens. So I'm going to put it in there. They'll look a little jinky, but they'll work. Okay, there we go. Otherwise, I have a cheater monocle, and that doesn't work too well for me. So we're in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Here we go. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, a man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, he's the thief and the robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he is brought out... All his own, he goes on ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Isn't that good? May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Well, Jesus was a master teacher. In fact, he was the greatest teacher who ever lived. And Jesus had a powerful way of taking a simple metaphor or image and turning it into a spiritual lesson to help us understand heavenly things. I like how Chuck Swindoll describes it. He says this. He says, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then a symbol is worth a thousand lectures. 
Jesus understood the power of a familiar image to unlock the mysteries of heaven, and no sight was more familiar or more common in first century Judea than that of a shepherd leading his sheep. In Jesus' day, Israel was divided into three regions. Up in the north was Galilee, where Jesus spent most of his time. He grew up there in Nazareth, one of the towns in Galilee. He ministered oftentimes in Capernaum, one of the main towns in Galilee. And then also he ministered at times in the south. The southern region was Judea. That's where the capital city of Jerusalem was located. And then in the middle of Israel was that area of Samaria, where Jesus spent a little bit of time. But if we put this map up here, I found this map this last week that I I thought was really helpful because it shows kind of the the contour of the land, the mountainous region going through this area of Judea where Jerusalem was. So Judea is here on the, the west side of the Dead Sea, west side of the Jordan River. And there in Judea, as you can see from that map, it is a higher elevation. In fact, this area of Judea is very similar to the high desert in a lot of ways. For starters, the elevation of Victorville and Apple Valley is just under 3,000 feet above sea level. Judea is almost exactly the same. Parts of Judea around 2,900 feet above sea level. Also, the land here in the high desert, as many of you know who have a green thumb, this is a really hard place to grow crops, right? You need to bring in some topsoil. You've got to do something to this hard, sandy uh, soil that we have here in the high desert. It's not easy to work with if you've got any inclinations of being a farmer. It's not a great place to grow things. Similar in Judea, had very hard and very rough, rocky soil. And so it was a lousy place to grow crops. But you know what? It was a great place to herd sheep. And so you didn't see all these orchards or anything typically going through Judea, but you saw a whole lot of shepherds out on the hillsides with their sheep. And so here in Judea, uh, this shepherd metaphor that Jesus uses and the sheep pen metaphor are going to be images that are very familiar to his listeners. Everyone in Judea, including the religious leaders here in John 10, were very familiar with the sight of shepherds and their flocks. So Jesus latches onto that imagery to reveal some powerful insights. He uses the metaphor of shepherding to reveal what kind of Messiah he is. And at the same time, he subtly points to those Pharisees and reveals that they're pretty lousy shepherds. Now, before we dive into verse one, a couple more things I want you to know, a couple things to keep in mind. This shepherding metaphor is not new in the Bible. It's not new with Jesus throughout the Old Testament. Oftentimes, this shepherding metaphor is used. And the second thing to keep in mind is in the Old Testament, oftentimes God is said to be the shepherd of Israel. All of you have heard the 23rd Psalm before, the most famous Psalm where King David said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters and he restores my soul. Amen. So David himself is one of those in the Old Testament that says, God is the good shepherd, and I am his sheep. He leads me beside still waters. He guides me into those green pastures. He restores my soul. And so God is the shepherd, and Israel is the flock of sheep. Amen? And so this is not a, an uncommon image or metaphor that's used in the Bible. And so Jesus latches on to that here. Now, look at verse 1 again. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, a man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is what? He's a thief and a robber. Okay, so in Jesus' day, during the colder months, 
it was very common for the shepherds to bring their sheep back home. And they would place them at nighttime in a sheep pen. And so we'll put this image up here for you to get an idea what these sheep pens look like. In those days, they built these sheep pens just outside of town. Sometimes the sheep pen was up against the houses, actually. And it was a bunch of stacked rocks. And oftentimes, to make it even more secure, the shepherds would put on top of the wall briars across the entire perimeter of this wall. And those briars and those thistles would act like barbed wire. And so they would keep the the predators, especially the wolves, from jumping over the wall into the sheep pen to wreak havoc. And it would be a deterrent for robbers or thieves to come over the wall and try to steal the sheep during the night when the shepherds were sleeping. Because the shepherds at nighttime, if they wanted to get some sleep and some R&R, they would together work with other shepherds and their flocks and put all the sheep into one sheep pen. And the shepherds would pitch in to pay this gatekeeper to block the one entrance to the sheep pen. There was always only one gate, and that gate would be closed, and that gatekeeper would be hired to be there all night long, laying across the entrance, so anyone or anything that tried to get to those sheep had to first step over him. Make sense? And so that's what they did in those days. So with that in mind, let's make sure we understand what Jesus is saying in these first five verses. Verse 1, in the dead of night, if someone enters the sheep pen by climbing over the wall, That guy is up to no good, right? He's a thief or a robber. Verse 2, by contrast, the guy who comes in through the gate is the shepherd. He's supposed to be there. Verse 3, the shepherd is recognized by both the gatekeeper and his sheep. The sheep don't just recognize his face. The sheep actually know their shepherd's voice. And that's what Jesus focuses on in verse 3. They recognize his voice. They know his voice. And he even calls them by name. Some people wonder how on earth if all the shepherds dumped all their sheep at nighttime into one sheep pen and those sheep, they kind of mingle. They're like party sheep, right? They're mingling all night long. And so you don't know the difference between one sheep that belongs to one shepherd and another sheep that belongs to another shepherd. How do they sort out their sheep in the morning? And the answer is it was actually quite easy. They would open the gate. The gatekeeper would open the gate and the shepherd would stand outside the gate. And all he had to do is call his sheep. And only his own sheep would come because only his own sheep recognized the voice of their shepherd. Amen. And he would even call them by name. Fluffy, Puff Puff, Casper, Sean, because you got to have a Sean the sheep, right? And, and so he'd, he'd call for sheep and bah, there they come one by man. They hear their name and they're kind of dumb animals, but they know their name. And they know their shepherd's voice, and so one by one, and and those of us that aren't shepherds, we just stand there in amazement. Seriously, these dumb animals are coming out one at a time, and all those that don't belong to the shepherd are staying behind. They stay put. They're not coming. (laughs) That's not my daddy. That's not my shepherd. I'm not coming. And so those other sheep would stay behind. Verse 4, unlike many shepherds in the Western world, Judean shepherds don't drive their sheep from behind. Instead, they lead their sheep from in front. Isn't that cool? They lead their sheep from in front. And the sheep, Jesus says, follow their shepherd because they know his voice. Finally, verse 5, they won't follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him. Sheep are dumb animals, but they are smart enough to only follow the voice of their shepherd. So Jesus gives this wonderful little picture of putting the sheep in the pen and their master calling him and the thieves and the robbers trying to break in and steal. And he gives them this wonderful little picture of shepherding. And in verse 6, we learn the reaction of the Pharisees he was talking to. Look at verse 6 again. Jesus used this figure of speech 
but they did not understand what he was telling them. I like how the message paraphrases verse 6. It says it this way. Jesus told this simple story, but they had no idea what he was talking about. (laughs) Isn't that just like certain students at times? The teacher thinks he's doing a pretty good job painting the picture, and the people are like, and it went right over their head. They had no idea what he was talking about. So thankfully, in verses 7 through 10, Jesus interprets the imagery. In verse 7, Jesus shares his third I am statement in the book of John. Back in chapter 6, Jesus had declared, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, they're standing by the candelabras in the temple courts. He said, he said I am the light of the world. And here Jesus says in chapter 10, I am the gate for the sheep. Jesus' statement can also be translated as, I am the door for the sheep. So some of you may have it translated that way in your Bible translation. Both translations are good. That Greek word that's used here, you can translate it as gate or door. Both describe Jesus. He is the door and he is the gate for the sheep. So what is Jesus saying? Well, he clues us in in verses 9 and 10. He says, whoever enters through me, whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Isn't that good? I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Say that with me. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, in contrast... There have been other imposters, past and present, who have claimed to be the gate for the sheep. But truth be told, they were just self-serving thieves and robbers. They came to steal. They came to kill. They came to destroy. Thankfully, in most cases, the sheep ignored them. Are you with me so far on this? Okay, so what is Jesus saying? Well, as best as I understand it, here's what Jesus is saying in these first 10 verses, particularly in verses 7 through 10. The sheep pen is the nation of Israel. Okay? The sheep inside the sheep pen are the Jewish people, the people of Israel. So the sheep pen Jesus is talking about is Israel. The sheep inside the sheep pen are the people of Israel. And in the past, false prophets and false messiahs have come onto the scene claiming to be God's anointed Savior. They tried to persuade the people of Israel to believe in them and to follow them. But God exposed every one of them as self-serving thieves and robbers. Instead of bringing deliverance and true life, these imposters came to steal and kill and destroy God's people. Although Jesus doesn't point his accusing finger directly at the Pharisees that he's speaking to here, it's implied that Jesus is counting the Pharisees, the religious leaders in his day, among those thieves and robbers. He is in essence, in an kind of underlying way in this teaching, calling those Pharisees false shepherds, bad shepherds, imposter shepherds, coming to steal and kill and destroy. Case in point, in just the prior chapter, a blind man who was born blind is healed of his blindness. Now, what would a good shepherd do in response to that if a blind man who is just healed miraculously, a miracle that's beyond anything you've ever even heard of, if he comes to you and shares that good news, what would a good shepherd do in response? He'd celebrate. But what did the Jewish leaders do? What did the Pharisees do? They interrogate the man. They slander the man. They end up kicking him out of the temple. They steal 
They kill, they destroy. They stole this man's celebration. They killed his witness for Jesus, to at least some extent, and they destroyed his faith, or at least they tried to. Thankfully, by the end of the chapter, the man ignored the bad shepherds, and he followed the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Jesus, on the other hand, is the true gate for the people of Israel. He alone provides salvation from the spiritual and religious predators roaming around outside the sheep pen. Jesus' followers recognize his voice of truth. And just like King David says in the 23rd Psalm, Jesus leads his sheep to green pastures. Amen. He brings them life. He brings them peace. He brings them protection. He offers them full life. Jesus offers you, if you are a follower of his, full life. I love how Warren Wearsby puts it. He writes, when you go through the door, you receive life and you are saved. As you go in and out, you enjoy abundant life in the rich pastures of the Lord. His sheep enjoy fullness and freedom. Jesus not only gave his life for us, but he gives his life to us right now. That is pretty deep. If that doesn't come across as deep, read it again. Think about it some more, because that is a very deep statement. I love it. There's no more abundant life than the life of a Christian. There's no more life of freedom that can be lived than the life of a Christian. Jesus Christ gives his followers full and abundant life. Isn't that awesome? Do you believe that? I hope you do, because it's true. The world will tell you if you want a real killjoy, then you start hanging out with a Christian. If you want to stop having fun, become a follower of Jesus Christ. If you want to do some of the most boring stuff imaginable, just start reading the Bible. That's what the world tells us. And the world, they've got blinders on. They don't see the truth that the fullest life imaginable, the most fulfilling life is a life of a Christian. It's a life of a Christian. It's full and abundant life with that in mind. Chuck Swindoll writes this. He says, the abundant life is life that never ends. Isn't that good? Yet we don't have to wait until the end of our physical life to receive this abundance and to enjoy it. Abundant life includes peace, a genuine purpose for living the joy of facing any adversity, including the grave, without fear, and the ability to endure hardship with confident assurance. Isn't that awesome? So Wearsby had said in the last sentence of his quote, Jesus not only gave his life for us, but he gives his life to us right now. Oftentimes we miss this. Jesus didn't just give you his life. He'll actually allow his life to be lived through you. Isn't that awesome? Have you ever looked at Jesus and said, wow, there is a man who lived an influential life. There's a man who lived out an amazing God-given purpose. There's a man whose life carried impact. Well, you know what Jesus told his followers? He said, you will do even greater things than I. Jesus can live his life through you. And the greatest life you could ever live, a life filled with purpose and impact and meaning, is a life where you allow Jesus Christ to do more and more and more through you. What causes the problem in our Christian walk is not Jesus' fault. It's our fault, right? We stand in the way of Jesus doing all that he wants to do through us. He wants to speak through you, but we put up the blockade and say, no, not this time. I'm going to speak instead. God wants to work through us. Christ wants to work through us. And we say, no, not this time. And we don't allow him to work through us. But 
His life can be lived through you. What an amazing thing. And Chuck Swindoll so wisely points out here that this life is so abundant. Abundant life means peace. I just prayed with someone last night on the phone and was letting her know that it doesn't make sense to have peace at a time like this. But Jesus Christ can give you peace anyway. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding, isn't it? He can give you peace no matter what you're going through. He can allow you to have a genuine purpose for living, a joy, no matter what you're going through. And you can have that uh, ability to stand and have faith in the midst of your adversity, even if you're on your deathbed, because of the life of fullness Jesus Christ offers you. Isn't that awesome to know we can face whatever comes our way without fear? Because we lean on Jesus Christ, who gives us full life. He is our good Good shepherd. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Well, I want you to look at what he continues to say, beginning in verse 11, still here in John chapter 10. Jesus goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. Say that with me. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep. He runs away. Then the wolf attacks and the flock, the flock and it scatters. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my, own, on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed. He's raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? <laughs> yeah, pretty good question, isn't it? <laughs> Well, here in verse 10, actually in verse 11, Jesus makes his fourth I am statement. First one was, I am the bread of life, chapter 6. Second one was, I am the light of the world in chapter 8. Third I am statement earlier here in chapter 10, he said, I am the gate for the sheep. And here's his fourth I am statement. He says, I am the good shepherd. Not only is Jesus the gate for God's followers, he's also the shepherd of God's followers. And he's not just an average shepherd, is he? He's not your average shepherd. Eh, Jesus, he's okay. If you just think, eh, Jesus is all right, he's mediocre, then you don't know my Jesus. He's not just an average shepherd, he is a good shepherd, amen? His plans for our lives are good. His leadership is good. The way he provides for us is good. He is good to me. He is good to you. He is good to my family. He is good to your family. He is a good, good Savior and Lord. He is a good shepherd. In verse 11, Jesus gives the Jewish leaders another subtle jab, implying that they are not true shepherds. They're hirelings. They play their parts pretty convincingly when the pastures are green and there aren't any predators for miles around. But as soon as they feel threatened, those Pharisees and other religious leaders do not hesitate to throw their sheep to the wolves to save their own skin. Why would a hireling do such a thing? Because as Jesus points out in verse 13, 
the hireling, the hired hand, cares nothing for the sheep. He's really just interested in his paycheck, right? And so that was ultimately one of the biggest problems with those Pharisees. They were hirelings. They liked their positions of prestige. As Jesus says elsewhere, you like the best seats at the banquets. You like to be recognized by men. You like to be called rabbi. They liked the notoriety of being a Pharisee and a leader of the Jews. They liked the best seats at the banquet, and they liked the paycheck that came their way as as a result of it. But when push came to shove and the heat was turned up in the kitchen, they did not care. They did not love their people. Hmm. That's pretty sad. Verse 13, Jesus says, the hired hand cares nothing for the sheep. That describes many of the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day. And sadly, it describes some pastors today. Some pastors are more hirelings than they are pastors. Ultimately, they like the title pastor. They like the recognition they receive as pastor. They like the notoriety. They like the perks that may come with it, and they like the paycheck. Now, as most of you probably know, if you want to make a good living going into the work of the pastorate is, is probably not your best bet. <laughs> doesn't pay particularly well. There's other things, many other things that pay much better, but some pastors really are able to do well. And so how do you know if a pastor that you're thinking of is a pastor or a hireling? Well, you can really just see how they respond when the heat is turned up in the kitchen. For example, if that pastor, whenever there is a clogged toilet or a spill on the floor, if he makes someone else clean it up, that's not a good sign. That sounds more like a hireling than it does a pastor. If that pastor is, is never accessible when it's inconvenient, that's a sign of a hireling and not of a pastor. How about when the church gets criticized? When the church gets criticized, does the pastor throw his staff under the bus? (laughs) If the pastor always is throwing his staff under the bus and saying, hey, I'm innocent of this, you know what? That's not a good leader, and that's not a true pastor. Sometimes pastors are hirelings. And in Jesus' day, many of those rabbis, many of those Pharisees, many of those religious leaders in Jerusalem, they were hirelings as well. Well, if you look between verses 11 and 18, Jesus reveals four vital ministries that he carries out that prove that he is the good shepherd. So I want us to take a few moments and look at these four critical ministries of Jesus, because we want to know our good shepherd better than ever before, don't we? We want to get to know our good shepherd better than ever. And he gives us these four wonderful ministries that he carries out as our good shepherd. Ministry number one, we'll start with that. Ministry number one, Jesus dies for his sheep. Say that with me. Jesus dies for his sheep. Say it like you mean it. Jesus dies for his sheep. Jesus reveals that in verses 11 through 13. Consider for a moment how truly radical Jesus' statement is. That he lays down his life. He dies for his sheep. That's a radical statement because that just doesn't happen much in the real world. In the real world, there's this pecking order. There's this chain of command. And when you have a pecking order and when you have a chain of command, the lower on the totem pole are supposed to sacrifice themselves for their leaders, right? That's how it works. Think of the army. Privates are supposed to lay down their lives for their lieutenants, right? If you doubt me, just ask Forrest Gump. 
Lieutenant Dan. Forrest Gump runs back, picks him up, throws him on his shoulder. Even though Lieutenant Dan doesn't want to be saved, he saves him anyway because that's what a private is supposed to do, right? The private saves the life of the lieutenant. The lieutenant lays down his life and saves the life of the colonel. And the colonel lays down his life for the general. And everyone in the army is supposed to lay down their life for the commander-in-chief. That's the way it works. But notice what Jesus says here. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. The one on top. That pecking order doesn't get to a person any higher than Jesus. He lays down his life for his sheep. What an amazing thing for him to say. What a remarkable thing to say. That's not the way things usually work. It seems so backward. But that's a part of what makes Jesus such a good shepherd. Five times here in John 10, Jesus reiterates that he lays down his life. He says it in verse 11, and again in verse 15, and again in verse 17, and twice in verse 18. He lays down his life for his sheep. And Warren Wiersbe, I think, says it so well as he writes, Jesus did not die as a martyr, killed by men. He died as a substitute, willingly laying down his life for us. Think about that. That may be a a new thought for some of you. Jesus was not killed. Jesus was not murdered. Jesus was not martyred. He laid down his life for us. It wasn't taken from him. There's a story about a young soldier who fought for France during World War I. And during one of the particular, particularly violent battles, this man's arm was so badly damaged, it had to be amputated. The man was unconscious, and while he was unconscious, the surgeon knew he had to take his arm in order to save his life. And so the surgeon, without the young man's permission, just did the surgery. He took off the man's arm, but he felt so bad. He was a good-looking young man. He thought his life was all ahead of him, and now he was going to go through the rest of his life with only one arm. So the surgeon, being a compassionate man, he stood by that young man's bedside until he regained consciousness. He wanted to be, be the one to tell him the bad news. And so he did. He was by his bedside. The man finally regained consciousness. And as he felt a strange sensation in his missing arm, the surgeon looked him in the eye and said, Son, I have some bad news. I'm sorry to tell you, you've lost your arm. The young man looked down at his stub. And with a smile on his face, he looked back at the surgeon and said something the surgeon never would have expected. The young man said, Doctor, I did not lose my arm. I gave it for France. Isn't that a beautiful perspective? And isn't that just like Jesus? I didn't get killed. No one took my life from me. No one killed me. I didn't lose it. I gave it. I gave it for you. He gave it for me. What an amazing perspective. Aren't you glad that Jesus wasn't killed for you? He gave his life for you. Jesus is such a good shepherd. Ministry number two, we find in verses 14 and 15, Jesus knows his sheep. Say that with me. Jesus knows his sheep. Jesus uses the word know four times in verses 14 and 15. The Greek word he uses here is a wonderful Greek word in the New Testament. It's used in John 17, 3. If you were to flip over to John 17, you would read the longest prayer of Jesus in the New Testament. He prays it most likely in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, just a few hours before he's arrested. 
And he prays this prayer in John 17. And in verse 3 of John 17, as he's praying, he gives one of the most beautiful, succinct descriptions of heaven given in the whole Bible. He says in John 17, 3, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says in a nutshell, this is what heaven is like, knowing God the Father personally and knowing Jesus Christ the Son personally. That's the greatest part of heaven, isn't it? Not the streets of gold, not the family reunion, not playing the harp. Eh, If I learn to play the harp, that's fine. But that's not what's great about heaven. What's great about heaven is knowing Jesus Christ and knowing our Father as we've never known him before. And Jesus uses the same word for no here in John 17, actually, or here in John 10. He uses this beautiful word, no. Jesus knows his sheep, amen? Jesus knows you. He knows you personally. He knows your name. Jesus knows your character. It's a little scary at times. He knows the good. He knows the bad. And he knows the ugly. He knows your character inside and out. And he knows your needs better than anyone else in the world. Jesus Christ knows you. There is a Savior who knows you better than anyone. And he loves you and died on the cross for you. Jesus is such a good shepherd. Ministry number three. We see this in verse 16. Jesus brings other sheep into his flock. Say that with me. Jesus brings other sheep into his flock. Now, if you had the misfortune of being in a Mormon church today, here's what the Mormons teach. About verse 16, there are other sheep who will be brought into the sheepfold. They say that after Jesus's resurrection, he floated or somehow transported himself across the Atlantic Ocean to ancient America, and he spoke to tribes and preached the gospel to them. Now, if you look in the Book of Mormon at those tribes, no historian in his right mind says those tribes ever existed. Joseph Smith pulled it out of thin air. But that's what they say. These other sheep Jesus is talking about are ancient Americans. Is that what he's saying? Uh, No, not even close. This is an example of eisegesis. Big word for you today. Eisegesis means you come with your own crazy idea and then you pull out the Bible and flip through it to try to come up with something that you can twist into justifying your crazy idea. That's what the Mormon church has done. That's what Joseph Smith did from the beginning. There is nothing in this verse that indicates Jesus is going to ancient America. That's hogwash. What is Jesus saying? Other sheep, the New Testament makes it clear those other sheep are non-Jews. Those other sheep are Gentiles. So how many of you in this room are not Jewish by ethnicity? Just about every hand should go up. Probably only a few of you are Jewish by ethnicity. Most of us are Gentiles, okay? So if you are a Gentile, you should really love this ministry of Jesus. He's got other sheep he's bringing in. Jesus didn't just come for the Jews. He came first for the Jews. His first priority was to share the good news and the message of salvation with the Jewish people, the people of Israel. But once that was done, then he shifted over to share the good news with non-Jews. That's why we have in John 3:16 those wonderful words for God so loved the nation of Israel? No, that's not what it says. For God so loved Jerusalem? Uh-uh. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So thank God he didn't just come 
for the Jewish people. He also came for his other sheep. How many of you are happy to be one of those other sheep that he invited into his sheepfold? Amen? Jesus brings other sheep into his flock. And that's one of the awesome things that makes Jesus such a good Shepherd. Finally, ministry number three, ministry number four, we find this in verses 17 through 21. Jesus takes up his life again. Jesus' voluntary death was followed by his victorious resurrection. I love that. Read that with me, please. Jesus takes up his life again. Jesus' voluntary death was followed by his victorious resurrection. Let's give him some praise and glory. Woo! Last time we checked, Buddha was still pushing up daisies. Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Mary Baker Eddy, founder of, uh, of uh, Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, all those folks still pushing up daisies. But not Jesus Christ. Not Jesus Christ. Some New Testament passages say that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. We read that, for example, in Acts 2.32, over in Romans 6.4, Hebrews 13.20. But here in verses 17 and 18, Jesus says that he has the authority to raise himself from the dead. So is the Bible disagreeing with itself, which is correct. Does God the Father raise Jesus from the dead, or does Jesus raise himself from the dead? And the answer is yes. Both, right? Both. Remember that Jesus and God the Father, Jesus has told us repeatedly in the Gospel of John that they, they together are one. Jesus never says anything that the Father didn't have him say. Jesus never does anything that the Father didn't want him to do. He and the Father are one. You think of the greatest duo, aside from the Son and the Father God, any other duo, whether it's Batman and Robin, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Peanut butter and jelly. Whatever duo you can think of, there is more unity and cohesiveness in all things spoken and done. In God the Father and Jesus Christ. I don't remember how I started that sentence. I don't know if that ended up making sense. But there is more of a unity in those two than any other duo out there. And so the answer is both. God the Father, working in perfect unity with God the Son, Jesus Christ, raised Jesus from the dead. There's no discrepancy here at all. Well, the passage ends in verses 19 through 21 with the Jewish leaders once again divided. Many of them thought Jesus was a demon-possessed lunatic. In those days, they thought if you were crazy, it was because of a demon. Or if they knew you had a demon, they thought you were crazy. And so the two kind of went hand in hand. So you were a demon-possessed lunatic is what many of the Pharisees said. But other Pharisees said, I don't see it. You know, the guy opened the eyes of a guy that was born blind. How can he be demon-possessed? How can he be a lunatic if he performs such amazing miracles? So the Pharisees were divided, and this shouldn't surprise us, because isn't that what doors and gates do? They divide people. Now, some of you might be hesitant to admit it, but there is one main reason why you have a locked front door on your house or apartment. There are certain people you don't want coming through that door, right? Well, that sounds very unloving. Shouldn't we just take the door off the hinges and allow everybody to come in? Come on, next door neighbor. Child predators, let them in. Just let them in. You know, guys on work release, whatever, let them in. You know, night stalker, come on in, buddy. Ramirez, you got released from prison, come on in. No. We obviously have doors because there are certain people we want to keep safe inside. And there are certain people we don't want in that we want outside. 
It's why we have doors. That's why there are gates. So when we think of Jesus being the door and the gate for the sheep, we focus on the positive. Praise God that he is the gate and the door that opens the way to salvation. Amen. Praise God that he's the gate and the door that allows us into a relationship with God the Father. Praise God that he's the door and the gate that allows us a pathway to heaven and eternal life with God in heaven. Praise God for that. But there's the negative as well. With that gate means some people will be shut out. Some people will be shut out. Not because he didn't invite them, but because they stubbornly refused to accept him. Jesus is the gate which separates the sheep from the goats. It was that way back then. It's that way now. It'll be that way on Judgment Day. You see, when it comes down to it, it's impossible to be neutral about Jesus. You're either with the Good Shepherd or you're without the Good Shepherd. If you are with the Good Shepherd, you will experience forgiveness, a relationship with God the Father, and eternal life in heaven. If you are without the Good Shepherd, you will not be forgiven. And you'll go to hell. That's the long and the short of it. The gate is the separation point in history. Jesus Christ is the gate. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. And so you're either with the good shepherd or you're without the good shepherd. So make sure that you go through that gate and that you are with the good shepherd. If you are looking for an abundant and full life, you'll never find it unless you're following the good shepherd. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being these two great things, for being the gate, opening the pathway to green pastures, forgiveness, a relationship with our God, eternal life in heaven. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our good shepherd, leading us into green pastures beside the still waters, living your life through us, giving us your peace, giving us your joy, giving us your strength. Oh, we thank you, Lord Jesus. You've been so good to us. We pray that you would be with anyone here today who has never yet made that decision for you. I pray that if there's anyone here who has never made that decision to follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that right now they would pray with me, Lord Jesus, please forgive me. I have sinned against you. I have broken your laws. Please forgive me. I believe that you are the Christ and the son of the living God. Please come into my life. Wash my sins away. And I ask you to take the driver's seat of my life. And I will follow you as my good shepherd for the rest of my life. I accept you as my savior and Lord. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen.